through. We come to the end here of chapter 13, and we come to a bit of a pivot in the passage just to help you catch up with the context, if you can remember how we've been moving along with Luke. When we got to Luke 9, Jesus sort of makes a a turn in the book, and he turns towards Jerusalem, and he says that he has set his face as if stone, his face is set towards Jerusalem. His mission is taking him to Jerusalem, and that's where he's headed. At at chapter 9, we kind of make that transition, and at that point, we're only weeks, months away from his triumphal entry into Jerusalem in the crucifixion. So that happens in chapter 9, and then really if you've been with us, or just to catch you up, chapter 9 to now has been almost all this interaction with the Pharisees where it's full of rebuke and warning. He's been going hard at the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and a judgmental spirit, this kind of cloak of religion and yet rejection of Jesus Christ. And so as he has gone with them back and forth now, Each episode, each story kind of takes us one step closer to Jerusalem. So really throughout this whole process now, the cross looms large for Jesus in Jerusalem. Each story, it gets a little bigger, a little closer, a little bigger, a little closer. As we come to the end of chapter 13, we're kind of finishing these episodes of this interaction with the Pharisees. And at the beginning of chapter 14, there'll be a few verses again that kind of have some interaction with Pharisees. And then Jesus is going to sort of switch gears and we're going to start having a lot of instruction and teaching, most of it in the form of parables between Jesus and disciples. And that kind of gives us kind of that, that quiet moment, a bit of a lull before then the triumphal entry in chapter 19 when really the intensity, what everything has been building to, arrives and that is in Jerusalem. So when we come to the context now, there's been heightened intensity with Jesus heading towards Jerusalem. We're weeks out from the crucifixion, from the Passover. Each step, each episode gets Jesus a little bit closer. If you remember to get a little bit more specific into our context now, he's just come off two episodes specifically with the Pharisees. One where he comes in on a Sabbath day, he comes to the synagogue, all of the religious elites are there gathered to hear Jesus. There's all kinds of, again, excitement to hear him. And Jesus ruins a perfectly good Sabbath day by noticing the sick, crippled woman who is all the way back in the corner. She sits there, she has some sort of uh, ailment that won't let her stand up straight, says that she is oppressed by a disabling spirit. And so Jesus sees this woman, and, and he notices her, and then he speaks to her. He, he calls out to her, and he has her come to the front, and then he heals this lady. And of course, instead of rejoicing, the Pharisees do what you have come to expect this time. They find a reason to get mad at Jesus for doing work on the Sabbath. And really what it is doing is putting the kingdom into perspective for us. When Jesus has come to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, what does it look like? Does it look like the religious elites who are gathered together, or does it look like the poor, the oppressed, whom Jesus is setting free? All along, this has been the kingdom. Its presence is known by Jesus' authority and power in the physical, the natural, and the spiritual realms. He has come to overcome the domain of darkness. We'll see that again in this passage. And then we see the character of the kingdom. And this is what is so different than what everyone expected. It's not political power and might and ease. The the character of the kingdom is marked by faith that shows itself in humility and mercy. 
Not judgment, but mercy. Not pride, but humility. And so it flips everything up on its head. Then we come to that narrow door passage. That's what Adam preached on, Pastor Adam preached on last week. And he talks about how the first will be last and the last will be first. And narrow is the gate. Many of you stand here saying, I knew you, Jesus, but you will not be with me in paradise. And this is a major slap into the Pharisee's face now because he's even telling them that they do not have eternal life. Narrow is the gate. Again, flipping it on its head. The first shall be last. The last will be first. The people who we look at and see successful, surely they're the ones that are, attract people. They're the ones who God will be impressed with and bless. And no, again, the kingdom is flipped on its head. And so we're at this point now, and when we come to our passage in verse 31, it says, now at that very hour. So right after this has been said, right after the tension has been raised, once again, Jesus has ticked off the Pharisees. We come to this section, and at this very hour, the Pharisees approach Jesus. One more comment and introduction, and then we'll just work through this passage. It's a is an interesting passage here, a kind of a unique passage for us. Often when we picture Jesus in his humanity, we get the image that kind of comes out of like the kids' Bibles or pictures that we would see, maybe movie, TV, whatever. And, and you have, you know, this Jesus who's like real white and perfectly clean. He's in a white robe with like the blue sash. He's got the beautiful flowing auburn hair. And, like, no matter what's going, he's kind of always, like, a look of serenity in his face, just peacefully gazing off into the heavens, all right? And that's sort of the Jesus that we have painted in our minds for us. Luke paints a really different picture of Jesus. First of all, he he didn't look like that. I doubt he had flowing auburn hair. I'm quite certain he didn't. Um, But he's also not this kind of passive, serene individual who stares off and contemplative thought while things happen around him. You see Jesus as one who is, experiences dramatically the full range of holy human emotions. Never in sin, but those emotions, those holy emotions, come forth all the time in Jesus Christ. You see it when he prays. You see these groans and these sighs and these weeping and this pleading. You see it in his joy. There, there is laughter. There is worship. There is, there is a celebration at the word of God. You see it when he is agitated and a righteous agitation or contempt grows up as he flips the tables of the money changers. We'll see it this morning again. Jesus Christ isn't a just kind of passive, serene individual. His whole life is surrounded by suffering, by persecution. It's always surrounded by threat, and he's near death most of his adult life. Everyone has a strong reaction to Jesus. He's a polarizing figure. Either they love him or they want to kill him. They hate him. And he doesn't just walk through life then unaffected, serenely staring off, hair flowing in the wind. This morning we're going to see both a real aggressive, almost agitated Jesus, and a real loving, warm, compassionate Jesus. If you like 
good jabs and sarcasm, irony, this is a good passage for you because Jesus goes at it. So let's jump into our text here. We'll walk through the text, make sense of it, and then we'll look briefly at the end at Jesus' response and what we learn about the mission of Jesus from the way he responds So in verse 31, at that very hour, some Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. So Herod would be the king who was placed in the province of Jerusalem. He would have had his his little palace there set up there. Herod, it is no surprise that he would want to kill Jesus, that a threat is coming at Jesus from Herod. If reading about Herod in history, it, it really paints him as this kind of weak, insecure leader who's always seeking approval, kind of easily manipulated both by those above him and below him. He's a bit unpopular this time because it's not long ago that he had John the Baptist beheaded, that he had John the Baptist killed. And so here we have Jesus again just causing problems, and Herod just wants him to go away, just disappear. You know how that is sometimes. There's just certain problems. You don't want to deal with it. You just want it to go away. And so he wants Jesus to just go away. And so here's how he'll do it. He'll send a death threat, and Jesus will run and hide as the hope. The Pharisees bring this message to Jesus, which is, you know, makes you a bit suspicious. When have the Pharisees ever been on Jesus' side? When have they been looking out for his best interests? They've wanted to see him die. So most likely there's some sort of collusion going on here between the Pharisees and Herod that, you know, let's just together get him out of the picture. If we kill him, there'll be an uproar. So let's just, here's how we'll do it. We'll tell him that there's death is coming. He needs to flee. And so that's how it comes to Jesus. And then you see Jesus' response. Verse 32, and he said to them, he says to the Pharisees, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Jesus responds, go tell that fox. It's a pretty demeaning comment. It's not like fox, like he's a handsome guy. He's foxy. That's not what's taking place here. He's foxes and if you're someone in power, if you're a king, like you're the animal you'd want to be is a lion, someone powerful, majestic. He calls him a fox, someone who's low, sneaky, suspicious. And, you know, while he's crafty in the end, he's pretty weak predator for the most part. Jesus looks through, sees Herod, has very little time and respect for Herod. We'll see it later, just a few weeks later, as Jesus is in Jerusalem, standing, about to be crucified. He stands before Herod. Herod asks him questions, point blank, and Jesus doesn't even mutter a word in response. He's got no time for Herod. He's not going to be scared off by a threat from Herod. Instead, He answers that he has a plan. Behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Can you see kind of the irony of this? They're trying to scare away Jesus with the threat of death. 
Jesus is on a march to Jerusalem. He's on a path to the cross. He knows what awaits him in Jerusalem. A terrible, agonizing death. Far greater than just physical torment. Separation from his God, as God would turn his face away. As he would become a curse. He would become sin He who knew no sin becomes sin for us. The cross looms larger each step. One commentator kind of said it would be if we were so cruel as to assign someone capital punishment, and the way we did it was, okay, the electric chair is at the end of the hallway. You're in a room about 20 doors down, and each day we just move you one door closer. And now you go to the next room and the next room, and kind of the the tension, the, the scariness that that would bring And that's kind of how Jesus is as he moves towards Jerusalem. And so this threat of death, it's a bit ironic. It's not going to scare him off. He is headed towards Jerusalem. Because you see, Jesus has already surrendered to the Father's will. He's already died to self. He's already laid aside what was rightfully his and become obedient to death, even death on a cross. I think we can step back and make a little bit of application here. I think often we're easily swayed from the will of God, what God has set forward for us. And we're easily swayed for it because we have not died to self and surrendered to His will. We have all kinds of competing passions and treasures and kings in our life. Yeah, we'll follow after God and do His will as long as I don't have to sacrifice my agenda, as long as I don't have to sacrifice my time, as long as I don't have to sacrifice my finances, whatever it might be, as long as I don't get any pushback and maybe, you know, maybe I feel like I'm getting held back in work because of my testimony. Or maybe at school I have someone who I think is mocking me behind my back a little bit. We're so easily swayed and pushed aside aside from following God, going hard after His will, because we haven't died to self, because He truly isn't king in our life. And so we're easily swayed from it. That's not the case with Jesus. He continues to press hard to go after Christ in this way. We see that Christ is sovereign. We see it in His response. He knows that He is going to die. He is going to finish His work. But He will lay His life down by His own authority. No man will take it from Him. John 18 tells us that. And so He continues to move forward. There's another layer of kind of irony in here. As Jesus talks about the prophets who die in Jerusalem. Look at verse 33. He says, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. There is a level of irony, but a real level of truth to this. Jesus isn't saying that every prophet ever killed was killed in Jerusalem. But he's making a point an emphasis here that Jerusalem is that blessed, the center of the blessed nation, where the temple was, where the presence of God dwells in a special way. The place where the king was to reign from, to rule from as God's representative among his people. Jerusalem, which stands as a representative for the people of God, the city of God dwelled with by the people of God. 
Jesus is saying, I'm in less danger from Herod than I am from the people who are supposed to be my people. All throughout the Old Testament, prophet after prophet is sent to warn the people of God, to teach them, and they are rejected. They are run out. They are stoned. They are killed. The people of God reject them time and time again. And Jesus, in a tone of irony here, says, Herod, am I going to be scared of you? I've got to go to Jerusalem. My own people are the ones I need to be scared of. They're the ones who are going to kill me. Again, I think there's just some simple application if you allow me to make it before we move on, that often as much damage and attack on Jesus is done in the church as it is anywhere else. Nowadays, in a search for cultural relevance or to be taken seriously, the church has all but dismissed the gospel, especially the atonement, that Jesus Christ would have to die, some sort of weird, wrathful, blood-shedding atonement. And they've substituted a new gospel. They've created really a new God, not the God who, who describes himself in the Word, but a different God. And they've created even what church is supposed to be. They've devoured the gospel. They've, they've set aside God in the attempt of cultural engagement or whatever it might be. I would say even within the church where kingdom characteristic is supposed to reign of humility and faith and love towards one another, yet there's a tendency again to fall into this judgmental devouring of one another. And you walk in the church and where again humility and love should reign, instead there is that same hypocrisy and judgmental spirit that Jesus condemns in the Pharisees. And remember, by hypocrisy, I'm not saying that you say sin is wrong, but you still sin. That's all of us, right? (laughs) Hypocrisy is that holding on and treasuring sin and hiding it, masking it, while you portray to everyone else that you've got it all covered. It is quick to point out the faults in others while never examining your own heart and confessing your own sin. We come where the people of God are just be dwelling in unity. Instead, there's devouring one another. There's a judgmental spirit. Again, time and time again, Jesus condemns that judgmental spirit that exists among the people of God. Judgmental spirit considering the faults of our neighbor with a look that's only sharpened by mistrust and that is not tempered by love or self-knowledge. Hear that? Looking and considering the faults of our neighbor with a look that is sharpened by mistrust and not tempered by love or self-knowledge. The idea that we understand that we ourselves aren't blameless. Judgmental person, someone who, who reaches quick decisions on somebody, won't change their minds, assigns them the worst possible motives for what they did, won't view something from a different perspective. And the people of God begin to devour one another, and in that sense, they begin to devour the testimony of Jesus Christ to the world around. It hasn't changed that much that Jesus Christ says, I don't have to be scared out there. 
there's enough enemies within Jerusalem. And so he continues his journey towards Jerusalem. I just want now to look back at the response of Jesus and break down just four different points. From these points, I think we can learn about Jesus' mission and make some application. And we'll be through this text fairly quickly this morning. So we see at this threat, Jesus is not going to run away. He is heading towards the city of Jerusalem. Back in verse 32, he says, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. Again, the mission of Jesus Christ in building his kingdom is that the kingdom of light is overcoming the domain of darkness. We see that as he shows his power over the demonic world, over physical realm, over all that is affected by the fall, all that is tainted by sin, all that has come crumbling down because sin has entered the world. Jesus Christ comes, and with a word he makes it right. That's the kingdom of God going forward. So he tells Herod, you're not going to stop me on my mission of bringing the kingdom of God. I'm going to continue today and tomorrow, casting out demons and curing people. Then you get that little reference there. And the third day, I finish my course. The course for us on the other side, look and we see those hints of the resurrection that third day. So Jesus' mission is building his kingdom. Secondly, we see Jesus on his mission is that Jesus will complete his work. He's not going to be stopped. It says, Behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow. On the third day, I finish my course The cross isn't a secondary plan because Jesus failed to persuade the Jews. It was purposed by God before the foundations of the world. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ came to accomplish the perfect will of the Father. To accomplish it, to complete it, it is finished, was his cry. which means he had to be obedient, perfectly obedient, all the way to death, death on a cross. John 4, 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus Christ came and he was going to finish the task. Herod, any threat, nothing was going to stand in his way of accomplishing, of finishing his task. Jesus Christ came to bring the kingdom and he promises to complete it, to finish that course that was set before him. Thirdly, we see the necessity of Jesus finishing this course. Verse 33 says, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow, the day following. That idea of I must go, there's, the construction there is the idea of it. It is of absolute necessity. You realize the absolute necessity of Jesus accomplishing his work. 
There is no other way to be right with God except through the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. It was absolutely necessary or we would have no hope. We can't just pick and choose a little bit of this and a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of, and have the wide door where everyone, as long as there's some sort of faith in something, Jesus Christ and his message narrows that door. It is through Jesus Christ, his accomplishments alone. And it is necessary that he accomplished it. And it is necessary that your faith rests in those accomplishments alone. The mission of God to bring his kingdom, to finish that work, the necessity of bringing it. And finally, we see that Jesus' work was accomplished with a heart full of compassion. Kind of the strong, aggressive, ironic, jabbing tone changes when we get to verse 34. Jesus yearning says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. That kind of loving, warm description there, that mother hen gathering, protecting, gathering under the wing, those helpless little chicks. Jesus shows his long suffering again and again and again. All throughout the Old Testament, there has been warning after warning, there has been chance after chance, prophet after prophet sent to the people of God calling them to turn back from their sin and turn to God. Jesus Christ in his own life, many times making that journey to Jerusalem in his own travels in Jerusalem and now returning once again. And he calls for them with a compassionate heart in that painting that picture of that motherly longing, just come, I invite you, please come, trust in me, rest in me. And yet they turn away and they turn away and they turn away. I think in this compassion, there's an encouragement and then a warning for us. We'll close with that. There is an encouragement over and over again through the Psalms. Jesus describes himself as that refuge, the one under whose wings we can hide. He is a strong and a mighty and a caring refuge. When life is turmoil all around you, listen to Psalm 57, 1. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. When you're feeling alone, feeling unwanted, feeling misunderstood, in Psalm 36, verse 7, it says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. For those who call upon God for the free gift of salvation, Psalm 61, verse 4, Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings Again in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God, you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. I could go over and over and over through the Psalms finding these type of references. But Jesus says a warm and compassionate calling the hurting, 
even calling those who have rejected him time and time and time and time again, still inviting them, if you would just come. There's encouragement and comfort in that for the hurting, for those who go through trouble. There's encouragement for those who have long rejected the call of God and the gospel. God has been incredibly gracious in giving the Son and then giving you His Word, and in that the gospel proclaimed. You've heard it, and for those who have rejected, God is patient. Even those who reject it, He, he waits kindly and patiently that you would come. We need to pray for those we know who are unbelievers. If that is you in your own heart and your own battle of just not submitting, not believing, the invitation is there from a warm and a loving Father. But there's also a warning. The one who rejects, the one who won't come to God, eventually will be forsaken by God. Verse 35, Behold, your house is forsaken. I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You don't know how many times the gospel will be proclaimed to you. You don't know how long your life is going to last. How many times you will hear that, the invitation stand. But respond. You don't want to be forsaken. That last reference there, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that's taken from Psalm 118. It was a, a psalm that they would sing as in anticipation of the Messiah coming in their worship back in, in the psalms. As it comes here now, it kind of anticipates a bit the triumphal entry. Again, they'll repeat this at the triumphal entry as Jesus enters Jerusalem just days before his crucifixion. But I think really what it is doing is pointing us to the second coming that when Jesus Christ returns, for those who have taken refuge in his wings, it will be a day of rejoicing. We will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But for those who have not run to him, have not taken refuge in him, they will be forsaken. This is one of those decision passages. We believe strongly, obviously, in the sovereignty of God and that, that God has to overcome your sin, open your eyes and draw you. But the truth is that there is an invitation to anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is an invitation to believe. When the gospel goes forward, you are called to respond, to believe and repent. I would just join with the passage and call on you at this moment. Believe and repent. Let's close in a word of prayer. And I'll invite the worship team up and we can respond in song. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the simplicity of it. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ and his commitment to accomplish the will, the work that was set before him.